Section eleven of the Ingoldsby Legends, first series. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Ingoldsby Legends, first series by Richard Harris Barham. Section eleven. He was in the midst of a long and animated harangue, explanatory of his master's high pretensions. He had informed his gaping auditors that the latter was the seventh son of a seventh son and of course as they very well knew an unborn doctor that to this happy accident of birth he added the advantage of most extensive travel that in his search after science he had not only perambulated the whole of this world but had trespassed on the boundaries of the next that the depths of the ocean and the bowels of the earth were alike familiar to him that besides salves and cataplasms of sovereign virtue by combining sundry mosses gathered many thousand fathoms below the surface of the sea with certain unknown drugs found in an undiscovered island and boiling the whole in the lava of vesuvius he had succeeded in producing his celebrated balsam of cracopanico the never-failing remedy for all human disorders and which a proper trial allowed would go near to reanimate the dead draw near continued the worthy draw near my masters and you my good mistresses draw near every one of you fear not high and haughty carriage though greater than king or kaiser yet is the mighty aldrovando milder than mother's milk flint to the proud to the humble he is as melting wax he asks not your disorders he sees them himself at a glance nay without a glance he tells your ailments with his eyes shut draw near draw near the more incurable the better list to the illustrious dr aldrovando first physician to prester john leech to the grand lama and hakim in ordinary to mustapha muley bey hath your master ever a charm for the toothache and please you asked an elderly countryman whose swollen cheek bespoke his interest in the question a charm a thousand and every one of them infallible toothache quotha i had hoped you had come with every bone in your body fractured or out of joint a toothache propound a tester master of mine we ask not more for such trifles do my bidding and thy jaws even with the word shall cease to trouble thee the clown fumbling a while in a deep leathern purse at length produced a sixpence which he tendered to the jester now to thy master and bring me the charm forthwith nay honest man to disturb the mighty aldrabando on such slight occasion were pity of my life a read my counsel aright and i will warrant thee for the nonce hie thee home friend infuse this powder in cold spring-water fill thy mouth with the mixture and sit upon thy fire till it boils out on thee for a pestilent knave cried the cousined countryman but the roar of merriment around bespoke the bystanders well pleased with the jape put upon him he retired venting his spleen in audible murmurs and the mountebank 
finding the feelings of the mob enlisted on his side, waxed more impudent every instant, filling up the intervals between his fooleries with sundry capers and contortions, and discordant notes from the cow's horn. Draw near, draw near, my masters. Here have ye a remedy for every evil under the sun, moral, physical, natural, and supernatural. Hath any man a termagant wife? Here is that will tame her presently. Hath any one a smoky chimney? Here is an incontinent cure. To the first infliction no man ventured to plead guilty, though there were those standing by who thought their neighbours might have profited withal. For the last-named recipe started forth at least a dozen candidates, with the greatest gravity imaginable. Pyrrho, having pocketed their groats, delivered to each a small packet curiously folded and closely sealed, containing, as he averred, directions which, if truly observed, would preclude any chimney from smoking for a whole year. They whose curiosity led them to dive into the mystery, found that a sprig of mountain ash, culled by moonlight, was the charm recommended. Coupled, however, with the proviso that no fire should be lighted on the hearth during its exercise, the frequent bursts of merriment proceeding from this quarter at length attracted the attention of Master Marsh, whose line of road necessarily brought him near this end of the fair. He drew bit in front of the stage just as its noisy occupant, having laid aside his formidable horn, was drawing still more largely on the amazement of the public by a feat of especial wonder. He was eating fire. Curiosity mingled with astonishment was at its height, and feelings not unallied to alarm were beginning to manifest themselves, among the softer sex especially, as they gazed on the flames that issued from the mouth of the living volcano. All eyes indeed were fixed upon the fire-eater with an intentness that left no room for observing another worthy, who had now emerged upon the scene. This was, however, no less a personage than the deus ex machina, the illustrious Aldrovando himself. Short in stature and spare in form, the sage had somewhat increased the former by a steeple-crowned hat adorned with a cock's feather, while the thick shoulder-padding of a quilted doublet, surmounted by a falling band, added a little to his personal importance in point of breadth. His habit was composed throughout of black serge, relieved with scarlet slashes in the sleeves and trunks. Red was the feather in his hat, red were the roses in his shoes, which rejoiced, moreover, in a pair of red heels. The lining of a short cloak of faded velvet that hung transversely over his left shoulder was also red. Indeed, from all that we could ever see or hear, this agreeable alternation of red and black appears to be the mixture of colours most approved at the court of Beelzebub, and the one most generally adopted by his friends and favourites. His features were sharp and shrewd, and a fire sparkled in his keen grey eye. 
much at variance with the wrinkles that ran their irregular furrows above his prominent and bushy brows. He had advanced slowly from behind his screen, while the attention of the multitude was absorbed by the pyrotechnics of Mr. Merriman, and stationing himself at the extreme corner of the stage, stood quietly leaning on a crutch-handle walking-staff of blackest ebony, his glance steadily fixed on the face of Marsh, from whose countenance the amusement he had insensibly begun to derive had not succeeded in removing all traces of bodily pain. For a while the latter was unobservant of the inquisitorial survey with which he was regarded. The eyes of the parties, however, at length met. The brown mare had a fine shoulder. She stood pretty nearly sixteen hands. Marsh himself, though slightly bowed by ill health and the coming autumn of life, was full six feet in height. His elevation giving him an unobstructed view over the heads of the pedestrians, he had naturally fallen into the rear of the assembly, which brought him close to the diminutive doctor, with whose face, despite the red heels, his own was about upon a level. And what makes Master Marsh here? What sees he in the mummeries of a miserable buffoon to divert him when his life is in jeopardy? said a shrill cracked voice that sounded as in his very ear. It was the doctor who spoke. Knowest thou me, friend? said Marsh, scanning with awakened interest the figure of his questioner. I call thee not to mind. And yet, stay, where have we met? It skills not to declare, was the answer. Suffice it we have met, in other climes perchance, and now meet happily again, happily at least for thee. Why truly the trick of thy countenance reminds me of somewhat I have seen before, where or when I know not. But what wouldst thou with me? Nay, rather, what wouldst thou here, Thomas Marsh? What wouldst thou on the frith of Aldington? Is it a score or two of paltry sheep? or is it something nearer to thy heart? Marsh started as the last words were pronounced with more than common significance. A pang shot through him at the moment, and the vinegar aspect of the charlatan seemed to relax into a smile half compassionate, half sardonic. Gramercy, quoth Marsh, after a long-drawn breath, what knowest thou of me, fellow, or of my concerns? What knowest thou? This know I, Master Thomas Marsh, said the stranger gravely, that thy life is even now perilled. Evil practices are against thee, but no matter. Thou art quit for the nonce. Other hands than mine have saved thee. Thy pains are over. Hark, the clock strikes one. As he spoke, a single toll from the bell-tower of Bilsington came wafted by the western breeze over the thick-set and lofty oaks which intervened between the frith and what had once been a priory. Dr. Aldravando turned as the sound came floating on the wind, and was moving, as if half in anger, towards the other side of the stage, where the mountebank, his fires extinct, was now disgorging to the admiring crowd yard after yard of gaudy-coloured ribbon. "'Stay, nay, prithee, stay!' cried Marsh eagerly. 
I was wrong, in faith I was. A change, and that a sudden and most marvellous, hath indeed come over me. I am free. I breathe again. I feel as though a load of years had been removed. And is it possible? Hast thou done this? Thomas Marsh, said the doctor, pausing and turning for the moment on his heel. I have not. I repeat that other and more innocent hands than mine have done this deed. Nevertheless, heed my counsel well. Thou art parlously encompassed. I, and I only, have the means of relieving thee. Follow thy courses, pursue thy journey. But as thou valuest life and more than life, be at the foot of yonder woody knoll, what time the rising moon throws her first beam upon the bare and blighted summit that towers above its trees. He crossed abruptly to the opposite quarter of the scaffolding, and was in an instant deeply engaged in listening to those whom the cow's horn had attracted, and in prescribing for their real or fancied ailments. Vain were all Marsh's efforts again to attract his notice. It was evident that he studiously avoided him, and when, after an hour or more spent in useless endeavour, he saw the object of his anxiety seclude himself once more within his canvas screen, he rode slowly and thoughtfully off the field. What should he do? Was the man a mere quack? An impostor? His name thus obtained, that might be easily done, but then his secret griefs, the doctor's knowledge of them, their cure, for he felt that his pains were gone, his healthful feelings restored. True, Aldrovando, if that were his name, had disclaimed all cooperation in his recovery, but he knew, or he at least announced it. Nay, more, he had hinted that he was yet in jeopardy, that practices, and the chord sounded strangely in unison with one that had before vibrated within him, that practices were in operation against his life. It was enough. He would keep tryst with the conjurer, if conjurer he were, and at least ascertain who and what he was, and how he had become acquainted with his own person and secret afflictions. When the late Mr. Pitt was determined to keep out Bonaparte, and prevent his gaining a settlement in the county of Kent, among other ingenious devices adopted for that purpose, he caused to be constructed what was then, and has ever since been conventionally termed, a military canal. This is a not very practicable ditch, some thirty feet wide and nearly nine feet deep in the middle extending from the town and port of Hythe to within a mile of the town and port of Rye, a distance of about twenty miles, and forming, as it were, the cord of a bow, the arc of which constitutes that remote fifth quarter of the globe spoken of by travellers. Trivial objections to the plan were made at the time by cavillers, and an old gentleman of the neighbourhood, who proposed as a cheap substitute to put down his own cocked hat upon a pole, was deservedly pooh-poohed down. In fact, the job, though rather an expensive one, was found to answer remarkably well. The French managed, indeed, to scramble over the Rhine and the Rhone and other insignificant currents, 
but they never did or could pass mr pitt's military canal at no great distance from the centre of this cord rises abruptly a sort of woody promontory in shape almost conical its sides covered with thick underwood above which is seen a bare and brown summit rising like an alp in miniature the defence of the nation not being then in existence master marsh met with no obstruction in reaching this place of appointment long before the time prescribed so much indeed was his mind occupied by his adventure and extraordinary cure that his original design had been abandoned and master cobb remained unvisited a rude hostel in the neighbourhood furnished entertainment for man and horse and here a full hour before the rising of the moon he left ralph and the other beasts proceeding to his rendezvous on foot and alone you are punctual master marsh squeaked the shrill voice of the doctor issuing from the thicket as the first silvery gleam trembled on the aspens above tis well now follow me and in silence the first part of the command marsh hesitated not to obey the second was more difficult of observance who and what are you whither are you leading me burst not unnaturally from his lips but all question was at once cut short by the peremptory tones of his guide hush i say your finger on your lips there be hawks abroad follow me and that silently and quickly the little man turned as he spoke and led the way through a scarcely perceptible path or track which wound among the underwood the lapse of a few minutes brought them to the door of a low building so hidden by the surrounding trees that few would have suspected its existence it was a cottage of rather extraordinary dimensions but consisting of only one floor no smoke rose from its solitary chimney no cheering ray streamed from its single window which was however secured by a shutter of such thickness as to preclude the possibility of any stray beam issuing from within the exact size of the building it was in that uncertain light difficult to distinguish a portion of it seeming buried in the wood behind the door gave way on the application of a key and marsh followed his conductor resolutely but cautiously along a narrow passage feebly lighted by a small taper that winked and twinkled at its farther extremity the doctor as he approached raised it from the ground and opening an adjoining door ushered his guest into the room beyond it was a large and oddly furnished apartment insufficiently lighted by an iron lamp that hung from the roof and scarcely illumined the walls and angles which seemed to be composed of some dark-coloured wood on one side however master marsh could discover an article bearing strong resemblance to a coffin on the other was a large oval mirror in an ebony frame and in the midst of the floor was described in red chalk a double circle about six feet in diameter its inner verge inscribed with sundry hieroglyphics agreeably relieved at intervals with an alternation of skulls and crossbones 
in the very centre was deposited one skull of such surpassing size and thickness as would have filled the soul of Spurzheim or Deville with wonderment. A large book, a naked sword, an hourglass, a chafing dish, and a black cat completed the list of movables, with the exception of a couple of tapers which stood on each side of the mirror, and which the strange gentleman now proceeded to light from the one in his hand. As they flared up with what Marsh thought a most unnatural brilliancy, he perceived, reflected in the glass behind, a dial suspended over the coffin-like article already mentioned. The hand was fast verging towards the hour of nine. The eyes of the little doctor seemed riveted on the horologe. Now strip thee, Master Marsh, and that quickly. Untruss, I say. Discard thy boots. Doff doublet and hose, and place thyself incontinent in yonder bath. The visitor cast his eyes again upon the formidable-looking article, and perceived that it was nearly filled with water. A cold bath at such an hour, and under such auspices, was anything but inviting. He hesitated, and turned his eyes alternately on the doctor and the black cat. Trifle not the time, man, and you be wise, said the former passion of my heart. Let but yon minute-hand reach the hour, and thou not immersed, thy life were not worth a pin's fee. The black cat gave vent to a single mew, a most unnatural sound for a mouser. It seemed as it were mewed through a cow's horn. Quick, Master Marsh, uncase or you perish, repeated his strange host, throwing as he spoke a handful of some dingy-looking powders into the brazier. Behold, the attack is begun. A thick cloud rose from the embers. A cold shivering shook the astonished yeoman. Sharp pricking pains penetrated his ankles and the palms of his hands, and as the smoke cleared away, he distinctly saw and recognized in the mirror the boudoir of Marston Hall. The doors of the well-known ebony cabinet were closed, but fixed against them, and standing out in strong relief from the contrast afforded by the sable background, was a waxen image of himself. It appeared to be secured and sustained in an upright posture by large black pins driven through the feet and palms, the latter of which were extended in a cruciform position. To the right and left stood his wife and Jose. In the middle, with his back towards him, was a figure which he had no difficulty in recognizing as that of the leech of Folkestone. The latter had just succeeded in fastening the dexter hand of the image, and was now in the act of drawing a broad and keen-edged sabre from its sheath. The black cat mewed again. Haste, or you die, said the doctor. Marsh looked at the dial. It wanted but four minutes of nine. He felt that the crisis of his fate was come. Off went his heavy boots. Doublet to the right, Galagaskins to the left. Never was man more swiftly disrobed. In two minutes, to use an Indian expression, he was all face. In another he was on his back and up to his chin in a bath which smelt strongly as of brimstone and garlic. "'Heed well the clock,' cried the conjurer. 
with the first stroke of nine plunge thy head beneath the water suffer not a hair above the surface plunge deeply or thou art lost the little man had seated himself in the centre of the circle upon the large skull elevating his legs at an angle of forty-five degrees in this position he spun round with a velocity to be equalled only by that of a teetotum the red roses on his insteps seeming to describe a circle of fire the best buckskins that ever mounted at melton had soon yielded to such rotatory friction but he spun on the cat mewed bats and obscene birds fluttered overhead erasmus was seen to raise his weapon the clock struck and marsh who had ducked at the instant popped up his head again spitting and sputtering half choked with the infernal solution which had insinuated itself into his mouth and ears and nose all disgust at his nauseous dip was however at once removed when casting his eyes on the glass he saw the consternation of the party whose persons it exhibited erasmus had evidently made his blow and failed the figure was unmutilated the hilt remained in the hand of the striker while the shivered blade lay in shining fragments on the floor the conjurer ceased his spinning and brought himself to an anchor the black cat purred its purring seemed strangely mixed with the self-satisfied chuckle of a human being where had marsh heard something like it before he was rising from his unsavoury couch when a motion from the little man checked him rest where you are thomas marsh so far all goes well but the danger is not yet over he looked again and perceived that the shadowy triumvirate were in deep and eager consultation the fragments of the shattered weapon appeared to undergo a close scrutiny the result was clearly unsatisfactory the lips of the parties moved rapidly and much gesticulation might be observed but no sound fell upon the ear the hand of the dial had nearly reached the quarter at once the parties separated and buckthorne stood again before the figure his hand armed with a long and sharp-pointed misericorde a dagger little in use of late but such as a century before often performed the part of a modern oyster-knife in tickling the osteology of a dismounted cavalier through the shelly defences of his plate armour again he raised his arm duck roared the doctor spinning away upon his cephalic pivot the black cat cocked his tail and seemed to mew the word duck down went master marsh's head one of his hands had unluckily been resting on the edge of the bath he drew it hastily in but not altogether scatheless the stump of a rusty nail projecting from the margin of the bath had caught and slightly grazed it the pain was more acute than is usually produced by such trivial accidents and marsh on once more raising his head beheld the dagger of the leech sticking in the little finger of the wax figure which it had seemingly nailed to the cabinet door by my truly escape of the narrowest quoth the conjurer the next course dive you not the readier there is no more life in you than in a pickled herring what courage master marsh be but heedful 
and they miss again, let them bide the issue. He drew his hand athwart his brow as he spoke, and dashed off the perspiration, which the violence of his exercise had drawn from every pore. Black Tom sprang upon the edge of the bath, and stared full in the face of the bather. His sea-green eyes were lambent with unholy fire, but their marvellous obliquity of vision was not to be mistaken. The very countenance, too, could it be? The features were feline, but their expression was that of the jack-pudding. Was the mountebank a cat, or the cat a mountebank? It was all a mystery, and heaven knows how long Marsh might have continued staring at Grimalkin, had not his attention been again called by Aldrovando to the magic mirror. Great dissatisfaction, not to say dismay, seemed now to pervade the conspirators. Dame Isabel was closely inspecting the figure's wounded hand, while Jose was aiding the pharmacopolist to charge a huge petronel with powder and bullets. The load was a heavy one, but Erasmus seemed determined this time to make sure of his object. Somewhat of trepidation might be observed in his manner as he rammed down the balls, and his withered cheek appeared to have acquired an increase of paleness. But amazement rather than fear was the prevailing symptom, and his countenance betrayed no jot of irresolution. As the clock was about to chime half-past nine, he planted himself with a firm foot in front of the image, waved his unoccupied hand with a cautionary gesture to his companions, and as they hastily retired on either side, brought the muzzle of his weapon within half a foot of his mark. As the shadowy form was about to draw the trigger, Marsh again plunged his head beneath the surface, and the sound of an explosion, as of firearms, mingled with the rush of water that poured into his ears. His immersion was but momentary, yet did he feel as though half suffocated. He sprang from the bath, and as his eye fell on the mirror, he saw, or thought he saw, the leech of Folkestone lying dead on the floor of his wife's boudoir, his head shattered to pieces, and his hand still grasping the stock of a bursten petronel. He saw no more. His head swam. His senses reeled. The whole room was turning round, and as he fell to the ground, the last impressions to which he was conscious were the chucklings of a hoarse laughter and the mewings of a tomcat. Master Marsh was found the next morning by his bewildered serving-man, stretched before the door of the humble hostel at which he sojourned. His clothes were somewhat torn and much bemired, and deeply did honest Ralph marvel that one so staid and grave as Master Marsh of Marston should thus have played the roisterer, missing, perchance, a profitable bargain for the drunken orgies of midnight wassail, or the endearments of some rustic light o' love. Tenfold was his astonishment increased when, after retracing in silence their journey of the preceding day, the hall, on their arrival about noon, was found in a state of uttermost confusion. No wife stood there to greet with the smile of bland affection, her returning spouse, no page to hold his stirrup, 
or receive his gloves, his hat, and riding-rod. The doors were open, the rooms in most admired disorder, men and maidens peeping, hurrying hither and thither, and popping in and out like rabbits in a warren. The lady of the mansion was nowhere to be found. Jose, too, had disappeared. The latter had been last seen riding furiously towards Folkestone early in the preceding afternoon. To a question from Hodge Gardiner he had hastily answered that he bore a missive of moment from his mistress. The lean apprentice of Erasmus Buckthorne declared that the page had summoned his master in haste about six of the clock, and that they had rode forth together, as he verily believed, on their way back to the hall, where he had supposed Master Buckthorne's services to be suddenly required on some pressing emergency. Since that time he had seen naught of either of them. The grey cob, however, had returned late at night, masterless, with his girths loose and the saddle turned upside down. Nor was Master Erasmus Buckthorne ever seen again. Strict search was made through the neighbourhood, but without success, and it was at length presumed that he must, for reasons which nobody could divine, have absconded, together with Jose and his faithless mistress. The latter had carried off with her the strong-box, diverse articles of valuable plate, and jewels of price. Her boudoir appeared to have been completely ransacked. The cabinet and drawers stood open and empty. The very carpet, a luxury then newly introduced into England, was gone. Marsh, however, could trace no vestige of the visionary scene which he affirmed to have been last night presented to his eyes. Much did the neighbours marvel at his story. Some thought him mad, others that he was merely indulging in that privilege to which, as a traveller, he had a right indefeasible. Trusty Ralph said nothing, but shrugged his shoulders, and falling into the rear, imitated the action of raising a wine-cup to his lips. An opinion indeed soon prevailed that Master Thomas Marsh had gotten, in common parlance, exceedingly drunk on the preceding evening, and had dreamt all that he so circumstantially related. This belief acquired additional credit when they whom curiosity induced to visit the woody knoll of Aldington Mount declared that they could find no building such as that described, or any cottage near, save one, indeed, a low-roofed hovel, once a house of public entertainment, but now half in ruins. The old cat and fiddle, so was the tenement called, had been long uninhabited, yet still exhibited the remains of a broken sign, on which the keen observer might decipher something like a rude portrait of the animal from which it derived its name. It was also supposed still to afford an occasional asylum to the smugglers of the coast, but no trace of any visit from sage or mountebank could be detected. Nor was the wise Aldrovando, whom many remembered to have seen at the fair, ever found again on all that countryside. Of the runaways nothing was ever certainly known. A boat, the property of an old fisherman, 
who plied his trade on the outskirts of the town, had been seen to quit the bay that night, and there were those who declared that she had more hands on board than Cardin and his son, her usual complement. But as the gale came on, and the frail bark was eventually found keel upwards on the Goodwin Sands, it was presumed that she had struck on that fatal quicksand in the dark, and that all on board had perished. Little Marian, whom her profligate mother had abandoned, grew up to be a fine girl and a handsome. She became, moreover, heiress to Marston Hall, and brought the estate into the Ingoldsby family by her marriage with one of its scions. Thus far, Mrs. Botherby, it is a little singular that on pulling down the old hall in my grandfather's time, a human skeleton was discovered among the rubbish. Under what particular part of the building I could never with any accuracy ascertain. But it was found enveloped in a tattered cloth that seemed to have been once a carpet, and which fell to pieces almost immediately on being exposed to the air. The bones were perfect, but those of one hand were wanting, and the skull, perhaps from the laborer's pickaxe, had received considerable injury. The worm-eaten stock of an old-fashioned pistol lay near, together with a rusty piece of iron, which a workman, more sagacious than his fellows, pronounced a portion of the lock, but nothing was found which the utmost stretch of human ingenuity could twist into a barrel. The portrait of the fair Marian hangs yet in the gallery of Tappington, and near it is another, of a young man in the prime of life, whom Mrs. Botherby affirms to be that of her father. It exhibits a mild and rather melancholy countenance, with a high forehead, and a peaked beard and moustaches of the seventeenth century. The signet finger of the left hand is gone, and appears on close inspection, to have been painted out by some later artist, possibly in compliment to the tradition which Testa Botherby records that of Mr. Marsh to have gangrened and to have undergone amputation at the knuckle joint. If really the resemblance of the gentleman alluded to, it must have been taken at some period antecedent to his marriage. There is neither date nor painter's name, but a little above the head on the dexter side of the picture is an escutcheon bearing quarterly jewels and argent in the first quarter a horse's head of the second beneath it are the words aetatis suoi twenty six on the opposite side is the following mark which mr simpkinson declares to be that of a merchant of the staple and pretends to discover in the monogram comprised in it all the characters which compose the name of Thomas Marsh of Marston. End of section 11